Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and Particularly I think from the left. I, I found striking at the very end of, of, of her questioning of uh, Dr. Blasey Ford how this wasn't actually the appropriate place for her to be doing this type of interview. Yeah. And we didn't, we didn't, we hard, not until the very end there, do we even once hear from a Republican other than Chuck Grassley. But you can't, even for Democrats, and we were talking about this earlier, Antonia, how, how, I, how remarkable I thought it was that it is only five minute rounds for each senator and then for the prosecutor uh, to ask questions. Again, you, you do get those five minute rounds in the House of Representatives. You never get them in the Senate. The Senate has always been considered this great deliberative body where a senator, that's why you have a filibuster, that's why you have all these rules that have always allowed, you don't have time limits when a senator takes to the Senate floor uh, to be able to talk. Um, The idea, the mystique around the Senate is that this is a place where a senator can take all the time that a senator needs to be able to express herself, himself, uh, until they're done. And so to turn this into a five-minute round of questions is really remarkable to me and just to me and, and again I, I i don't know how much we got out of having um rachel mitchell qu- uh, question her well i think we're going to find out i mean it seems to me that rachel mitchell was building a case and i think now we do have jessica mason P- we don't never mind we're going to get to her <laughs> i read that incorrectly okay sorry excuse me um i think we are going to see where she's going and i think where um the prosecutor rachel mitchell is going is she's building a case of inconsistency um in the testimony that blasey ford has provided again not on the assault itself but on when she reported it to whom, and particularly, again, focusing on this issue of um, of uh, when she reported it to the press, when she reported it to other to to the to Congress, to her representatives. Um, but also on this issue that you've raised of the five minute rule, you know, again, it just brings us to the uniqueness of this moment. I'm not positive that there's anything wrong with that. Um, and I'm seeing um, hand gestures from our from the room and I don't know what they mean. Yeah, so, what, what, what um, we're going to do is we are going to take a quick music break. We have Jessica Mason Piclo on the line. We're going to take a quick music break that will allow our listener, our stations to be able to identify themselves. So we'll be right back and then we'll be able to get to Jessica Mason Piclo. You are listening to Pacifica Radio. We are providing you with special gavel-to-gavel coverage of the Senate Judiciary's confirmation hearing of the nomination of Brent Kavanaugh to United States uh, Supreme Court with testimony that has completed about three hours worth of Dr. Blasey Ford. And coming up after this break will be the testimony provided by Brett Kavanaugh. Um, I am Antonia Yuhas. I am joined by Mitch Jezrich. Thank you for being here, Mitch. I work here, Antonia. 
Maria. You work here? Yes. You work here too? <laughs> I am here. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. No, thank you for being here. It's a great opportunity to be able to see this historic moment unfold. And, uh, of course, Antonia Juhas, for our listeners across the country, you may know her by her writings. Uh, she is now right now co-hosting our uh, KPFA, sister station KPFA in Berkeley's uh, show up front. But she's also a well-known investigative journalist. And we're just thrilled to have you here with us well, right now. Well, just thrilled to be here. Thank you yes. so much, Mr. Thank Jesuit. You. Thank you. Um, we are also joined by Jessica Mason Piclo, and she is the vice president of law and the courts at Rewire News. She is the co-host of Boom Lawyered Podcast, which provides legal analysis for the resistance. Thank you for joining us, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. Great. And we can hear you loud and clear. Thank you so much. I want to start right now with this question of the decision by the Republicans to have Prosecutor Rachel Mitchell speak on their behalf and question Dr. Blasey Ford on their behalf. Your take on that? Sure. Well, um, I think that uh, it suggests that the Republicans were concerned not just with the optics of having an all-male, all-white judiciary uh, Senate Republicans questioning Dr. Ford, but also, I think, uh, temperament-wise. We saw, for example, Senator Grassley get uh, really riled up at suggestions that uh, the process had been moving too quickly or that, um, you know, they had not been fair to Dr. Ford. And I quite frankly think that having Mitchell... Uh, question for it is a way to make sure that none of the senators uh, actually in a in the heat of the moment or in the process attack Ford directly themselves. Mm. So you think that they were also basically concerned with their own behavior that you would get that we would get a repeat of the Anita Hill hearings where there was just really uh, I would characterize it as obscene behavior by uh, the senators who were questioning her on multiple multiple occasions. Absolutely. I think that that had to be on their mind. And um, we have seen even in in Senator Grassley's opening statements, for example, he tried to and and really pushed the idea that there are two victims in this process, that that Judge Kavanaugh is as much a victim, he said, as Dr. Ford. And imagine that going through um, hours of testimony where you have Democratic senators like uh, Senator Harris or Senator Klobuchar who are really uh, pushing on the manner of the proceedings and and the credibility of Ford as a witness, it would be up to the senators themselves to try and discredit her testimony in some way. Mm. And how do you think, you know, the the line of questioning that uh, Rachel Mitchell has taken and the manner in which she's doing it, what's your assessment? Well, um, I think you had said earlier that she's building a case, and I think that's absolutely right. Um, She has to walk a very fine line here. She needs to create a cloud of uh, question on on Dr. Ford's credibility enough to give Republican senators cover to vote against or to vote for uh, Kavanaugh to make sure that those those votes stay together. It will be really interesting to see the way in which she handles uh, Judge Kavanaugh in the second round at the hearings, Um, whether or not she is uh, cross-examining him to the same degree as she approached Dr. Ford. I think that will say a lot about the manner in which she's proceeding, too. And, you know, what What do you think, um, can you tell by the questions that you've been you know, listening to from uh, Rachel Mitchell where you think the points of, 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 of um, 
you know, attention particularly are laying and what potentially the case might be at this point, that the places where they're really trying to, to pick apart Dr. Blasey Ford's testimony? Um, I think there were a couple uh, clear silos is how I would categorize them. One, um, the Republicans through Mitchell want to make the case that this is a political hit job. We saw a lot of questions about whether and who Diane Feinstein's office uh, had recommended in terms of counsel who were paying for things uh, like the polygraph. Those are all designed to make the case that this is politically motivated and that uh, Dr. Ford has some sort of financial sponsor or benefactor pushing her along on these claims. And then the other, of course, is just to uh, really get to the idea that she is mistaken about the night in question. And it was good to hear the senator, the Democratic senators reiterate time and time again that this is not a criminal trial, that Dr. Ford is not on trial here, that this is effectively a job interview for a promotion for Brett Kavanaugh. And so, you know, that standard alone should should be what's what's driving this. Why shouldn't the Senate uh, have a criminal hearing? Uh, because it's not a court of law. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, that's, what, that's what I figured your answer would be, but I wanted to give us the opportunity to say that. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I, it, no, it raises a very important point. I mean, you know, for, for example, um, we've heard a lot about due process, right? and how there's not due process protections in place. And there aren't, because we don't have the risk of a constitutional deprivation of rights happening here, right? Judge Kavanaugh does not have a constitutional right to be promoted to the Supreme Court. What the Senate's job is under the Constitution is to uh, go through advice and consent, and that is an investigatory uh, and fact-finding process. That's what Congress does, and particularly the Senate. And they are avoiding that and um, wanting simultaneously to push this through as quickly as possible, but also reframe this so out of whether or not Judge Kavanaugh has displayed a lack of temperament suitable for to the Supreme Court, let alone the federal bench in general, but that whether or not the truth or the falsity of um, Dr. Ford's uh, allegations uh, within, you know, a couple hours. These types of criminal trials go on sometimes for weeks. Mm. And, you know, what do you think would be added if this was, you know, essentially stopped at, at this moment and there was an FBI investigation? What would that add to this process that is missing? Uh, it would add the opportunity for uh, Judge Kavanaugh and his colleagues, like Mark Judge, uh, the full opportunity to clear their name. We are hearing so much about how this is character assassination, but then not willing to hear from the very folks who can fully and, and um, accurately clear him if that's the case. I mean, it is... Uh, it just boggles the mind that a prosecutor would be moving forward questioning uh, as someone who has made an allegation and who has named eyewitnesses and just move ahead, not hear from them. It's, it's bananas. It makes no sense if what the point of the process is to come to some sort of understanding about what has happened. So I think that that alone the fact that, you know, Mitchell has gone through these questions and and we have a sworn statement that someone like Mark Judge has made. But the senators, the Democratic senators don't have the opportunity to question him on that. You know, they don't have the opportunity to impeach him the way that they are impeaching or trying to impeach Dr. Ford in her testimony. I mean, uh, that, on that question overall, you know, how how do you think this is proceeding 
as um, you know a, a a good hearing, a fair hearing, an appropriate hearing thus far. I thought it was very telling that at the at near the end of her time, uh, Rachel Mitchell herself said that you know asked Dr. Ford if she had any experience in trauma informed uh, interviews and joked that the Senate process was absolutely not it. Mm. Uh, I think that uh, there was public pressure to have a hearing and to have a hearing quickly as far as the Republicans were concerned to make sure that they could keep the votes. You know, the longer this plays out, the more information that comes that comes out, the harder it will be, perhaps, for them to keep all of the their Republican members corralled. We're already seeing, you know, a, a few signs of cracking, perhaps. So that is their agenda. And I think that with that in mind, it is impossible, fundamentally impossible to have this as a fair process. Well, and there are um, at least four senators that have been identified so far who could be on the fence. Collins, Murkowski, Jeff Flake of Arizona, Dean mm-hmm. Heller of Nevada, the only Republican up for reelection uh, in November in a state won by Hillary Clinton. You know, what's your reading of the tea leaves on those four or any other senators, Republican senators who might be uh, wavering? Um, I think it is. Uh, I think that's a good sign. I think uh, that hearing from those senators, in addition to President Trump's comments like last night, suggesting that, yeah, maybe possibly I would consider withdrawing the nomination and, and putting someone else up there after the hearing. You know, I think that is designed to create a little bit of cover. Uh, the Judicial Crisis Network, which is a dark money organization that has poured millions of dollars into the effort to get uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, confirmed has quietly stopped placing ads while this Mm. is happening. So I think that that's another thing to pay attention to. It doesn't change the fact that really they only need 51 votes. And, you know, um, we will see if um, they can't get that together. I would just note that if they really can't, this is an enormous unforced error by Republicans in filling this vacancy. Jessica Mason, before we wrap up here, um, is there anything with Brett Kavanaugh coming up next that you will be listening for specifically? Um, I am not listening for specific content as much as I am watching his body language and the manner in which he conducts himself in the hearing. Um, Unfortunately, I think he just kind of needs to be a tolerable human being to have Republicans rally behind him and and keep their vote. But really, I think the manner in which he he handles questions from Senator uh, Harris, for example, or Senator Klobuchar, uh, Senator Hirono, um, we've seen him get agitated. He got very agitated when Senator uh, Harris had questioned him during his first round of confirmation hearings. So how he behaves is really what I'm looking for. What do you think about the testimony that he already you know, released, his, his prepared statement, um, you know, what that might tell us? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what, what, what was your take on that testimony? Um, so it was really interesting to hear him strike back so hard and really quadruple down on the idea that this is a political smear. I think that that's a, a calculated decision, though, when you look at the manner in which um, President Trump was elected. There was a whole bunch of controversy around the Access Hollywood tapes and all of these allegations, and, and Trump still was elected. And so I I do believe that there are conversations about just get through this, it, you know, um, to get through it. And it, it, his tone follows President Trump's tone, which is to deny and then to attack. Mm. Jessica Mason Piclo has been our guest. Again, she's vice president of law and the courts at Rewire News. And uh, you can also 
find her podcast, but she's a co-host of Boom, and uh, and, and her Twitter handle, maybe the best Twitter handle in the universe, Hegemami. <laughs> so, uh, Jessica Mason Piccolo, we thank you greatly. Oh, it's always such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And you're listening to Pacifica Radio's live coverage of the Senate Judiciary Committee confirmation hearing for Brett Kavanaugh, day five now. Uh, we will hear when the committee comes back from its break from Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, I'm Mitch Jezerich with Antonia Yuhas, and we now want to bring to our program Barbara Arnwine. Barbara Arnwine is the president and founder of the Transformative Justice Coalition. Uh, she is president emeritus of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law, and she was also very active in organizing African American women supporting Anita Hill in her case of sexual harassment against Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas in 1991. Barbara Arnwine, I thank you greatly for taking time to join us as well. Well, thank you for having me. What, what do you What do you think about what we're witnessing now, and, and especially what you remember from 1991? Well, I can tell you that today was moving. I literally cried. Um, I didn't expect that, uh, but to hear her and to hear her recounted and the way she recounted her story brought tears to my eyes, and unexpectedly, watching this hearing all day, I just keep tearing up. It's a, it's a very sad moment uh, for our country that she was treated so badly uh, in this whole get through this hearing process uh, and to watch the unfairness of the hearing itself. I think it was just a painful moment. There's no glee in this. This is very sad, uh, but the only thing I can see positive out of this is that it's really demanding that our culture confront the issue of sexual violence in a way that we have and failed to do so. Anita Hill put us all warning. She was so brave uh, to come forth when she did in 1991 and consider she didn't get the thousands of letters uh, of people signing on saying we believe her. She didn't have a university. She didn't have a, let's say she didn't have a, a, a high school where the women of the high school stood up for her and where the principal and others have stood up for her. She didn't have you know, all of her uh, all of her colleagues coming forth and standing up for her. She stood alone. And even with all of the um, support that we've seen for Dr. Christine Lazy Ford, I thought it was fascinating. Every time someone said to her, you are a symbol, you have encouraged so many women. Did you see her look? Her look was not one of pride. Her look was not one of, you know, uh, accomplishment. Her look was that look that every woman who has been through this and every man who has been through sexual violence has, and that is the look of, I'm still alone. How? Barbara Arnwine, we very much want your perspective here. I just want to say, I, I know you're joining us via the cell phone. just want to make sure you're speaking right into the cell phone because you 
come in and come out a little bit uh, here. Oh, on our, I'm sorry. No, no. How am I sounding now? Well, we're about to find out. Let, let, let me ask one last question here before I hand it over to uh, Antonia. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I think one of the reasons why we're seeing this prosecutor, Rachel Mitchell, ask questions for Republicans is ostensibly because Republicans are scared of appearing that the way that lawmakers did for uh, Anita Hill's uh, testimony back in 1991. What What is your take about the role that Rachel Mitchell is playing? I think she's been a failure in her role. I think uh, this hearing uh, so far has been a disaster for the GOP, for the Republican members of the Senate Judiciary Committee. First of all, Grassley, as the only real voice for those members, is a disaster. He's been so oh, my God, a rut, so, you know, rush, so difficult. Uh, and he's come across very badly, I think. And she, Rachel Mitchell, has come across as just outclassed. I mean, she just doesn't look like this is a forum that she is suited to, that she's capable of rising to the moment of this uh, hearing I think her questions were terrible. I thought her points were horrible. I thought uh, if the only thing you can go after this woman for is uh, you seem to have been able to fly uh, to your you know, designations okay, except for this one, then if that's the best you can do, that's not enough uh, to discredit her story. Can you, you know, for for listeners for whom uh, 1991 was a, a long time ago or they weren't yeah. at the time paying close enough attention to the Anita Hill, uh, Clarence Thomas hearings, what do we need to know? What is a lesson that we need to know of what it was like during those hearings? What what went wrong and what the lesson needs to be today? Well, the biggest problem was that back then there wasn't a movement, a strong enough women's movement to stand behind her. And a black woman being the leader of this was just kind of like, you know, very, very unheard of. Uh, And people, I think, had a lot of struggles because, remember, there wasn't a unity within the African-American community. People were very upset that this black woman was speaking up and bringing this, quote, brother down. Mm. There were all of these feelings within, you know, white women who didn't know quite how to relate to this black woman bringing this kind of charge publicly. Remember, nobody wanted to talk about these issues in 1991. It wasn't the the kind of social media that people see now where people talk about everything, that didn't exist. You had a whole different culture around sexual allegations in particular. You know, you could talk about women's equality somewhat, but remember, she went before a panel where there were no women on either side of the aisle sitting there. Uh, so she, you know, had, a, had to encounter an environment that was profoundly different than the environment, in part, that uh, Dr. Ford has encountered. But I would say, oh, but however, the two of them have nevertheless 
shared the same experience in the Senate Judiciary Committee doing a poor job. Mm. The, uh, you know, the speculation of the press, the demeaning of, you know, her as a woman, you know, all of these false allegations that are in the, you know, popular uh, sphere, all of these things that have just been horrible for her as a person, the death threats. I mean, just imagine. And I feel bad for her because I know, having watched Anita Hill over these many years and taken advantage of listening to her whenever I can, that you see that this has never left her life. Hmm. She's never been free of this moment. So this is a lifelong, uh, not, you know, it's a lifelong, you know, impact that she will have to struggle with, that her children will have to struggle with, that her husband will have to struggle with. So I just want to say that, you know, to me, the biggest difference is that so much has changed in the somewhat in the understanding of women that we're more willing to stand up and that now men are beginning to stand up against sexual violence. But at the same time, so much hasn't changed. And that's the tragedy. If we do not, as a nation, commit to eradicating sexual violence, to getting rid of rape culture, to stop talking about boys will be boys, to stop justifying and excusing this, until we're able to do that as a culture, we're going to keep replaying this game book, this whole playbook. we got to change this. This is not acceptable in the United States. It shouldn't be acceptable globally, but women all over the world are fighting with this. So we have a U.S. battle and we have a global battle. Have you noticed any differences in the way there's now three women uh, that have most vocally come forward in accusations against Brett Kavanaugh um, and both um, Christine, um, Professor Blasey Ford and um, and uh, sorry, I've just now forgotten the name of the second woman, Julie um, Swetnick. Um, are yes. white women and Deborah Ramirez, her father is Puerto Rican. Have you noticed any yes. difference in the way that um, the three have been treated uh, with, with Deborah Ramirez being a Puerto Rican woman? Well, yes. I mean, I do think that um, it's been very fascinating that with Deborah Ramirez in particular, that people have had to talk about her credibility. I have had to, you know, feel like they've had to somehow um, say that she, you know, should be listened to, that white men have been vouching for her, right? Hmm. Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's good that white men are vouching for her who knew Kavanaugh and knew her, but it's tragic at the same time because she alone isn't enough, right? Uh, you know, she, her own story, her own credibility, her own accomplishments aren't enough that she has to also be protected with the male uh, veneer of respectability. I think that's a problem. And I do think that there's been a difference between the way that she has been viewed. And like they said, you know, she was not from one of these upper-class families. we got classism going on here. And we got some, you know, interesting intersectional race and gender issues taking place. 
Again, you are listening to Pacifica Radio's live broadcast of the Senate Judiciary Committee confirmation hearing for Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. We're waiting for the committee to come back from its break. Uh, they're still on break. Once they do, Brett Kavanaugh will be then on the at the witness table. We are speaking to Barbara Arnwine, president and founder of Transformative Justice Coalition, uh, also president emeritus of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under the law. Uh, Barbara Arnwine, what about what are you looking for with what we're about to hear and see from Brett Kavanaugh? And, and again, I, I keep thinking about your experience with Clarence Thomas. Of course, Clarence yes. Thomas had to, to come in and testify uh, after Anita Hill as well. Do, do you remember? Let me ask you quickly. Let me ask you this quickly, though. Do you were they five minute rounds for Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill? My recollection is that it was better. That there was more extensive. So I'm really surprised about this five minute round thing. Yes, I think they did repeated rounds. Remember, it was not just a a small, you know, uh, half a day hearing. It was, you know, a considerable, you know, hearings, and it was very painful. Uh, and they had a lot of character witnesses. Remember, I mean, they mm. this was a very different hearing process. What we're seeing here, and I have called it a charade. Uh, because as somebody who works in the legal system, who lives on, you know, the principles of equal protection and due process, none of that has happened here. There would not be a hearing but for the fact that the public had an outcry. This was not, you know, regardless of how Grassley tried to open this up uh, and try to appear that they have been so responsive, that's not the case. Plus, all this interviewing being done by staff. I mean, there's so many problems with what has happened here, with, you know, the senior staffers, uh, with at least one senior staffer having to resign for his, because of his own sexual violence um, <laughs> allegations in the background. I mean, there's so much that's wrong here. And that's why the FBI being excluded is a problem. I also heard, you know, from the earlier uh, guests, uh, when we were talking about senators who are on the fence, there's a new name that has emerged, uh, Senator Shelley Moore Capito, uh, because apparently she went to Holton Arms, and she's been very, very concerned as an alum, talking with the other women from the school, looking at what this means. I understand that she now has serious concerns about this nomination. All right, Barbara Arnwine, we, we, we thank you greatly for taking uh, time to join oh, us this afternoon. Can I? Yes, can please. I make one other point? Yes, yes you can. can. What the expect from Kavanaugh? I think he will bristle some. Mm. I think that he will, uh, you know, remember that uh, Clarence Thomas during the Anita Hill hearings with Jeff, he sat there insulted. <laughs> the entire time. Well, I don't think we're going to see that, hopefully. And I don't think we're going to see, you know, some allegations of a high-tech lynching and all that. But I do think that we can expect that uh, he will try to come across as credible. He will deny everything, which is a mistake, uh, because you know, anyway, we know that he had, you know, serious drinking problems during that time. And there's going to be all kinds of, uh, you know, his emphasis on, you know, he's just the, the typical guy who somehow has gotten caught up in a mistaken identity. I think we're going to keep hearing that defense. I don't think it works, but nevertheless, um, 
that's what I think we can expect. All right. Barbara Arnwine, president and founder of Transformative Justice Coalition. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, Thanks and, for being with us. Yeah, good stuff there. Antonia, you and I have been talking about what's going on in the streets, what's going on with the protest. Are we going to see protests in the committee uh, here in a moment? Well, let's let's go to D.C. And, and, and joining us also on the telephone is Ariel Gold. Ariel Gold is the co-director, uh, the national co-director of Code Pink. Good afternoon, Ariel. Thanks so much for having me on. It's good to have you on. Where are you? I am in Washington, D.C., and I just... Uh, left the protest that was taking place outside of the Supreme Court.